Do you ever find yourself getting a little bit agitated? <laughs> Probably the question should be, how often do you find yourself getting agitated, right? But do you ever kind of look around at what's going on in the world? Maybe it's looking at news headlines, maybe it's observing what's happening in your school or your workplace or your street or whatever it might be, and you find yourself feeling a little bit angsty about what's going on around here? Where is the world headed? Where's our country headed? What's, what's, what's going to happen in the days and weeks and years to come? Do you ever find yourself finding yourself a little bit stirred up about that. But on the flip side, do you, do you find yourself being a little bit too comfortable at times? Do you find yourself kind of stepping back and realising, you know what, I actually am pretty cruisy with where things are at in our society, in our world, I'm doing the same holidays as everyone else, I'm doing the same kind of work hours as everyone else, I play the same sort of sports, watch the same sort of TV shows. I'm actually pretty comfortable right now in the world as it is and I'm not stressed at all. Um, you tend to kind of be in one or either of those places. Do you find that? Sometimes you're in the, the latter one of those and things are really cruisy. And then sometimes you get really stirred up about something because you've just seen a headline or you've just had an election or there's just been something going on. And then you go back to comfortable again. And as we look at what Jesus has to say to us in this last great body of teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, one of the things he's doing is he's saying either of those options isn't any good for my people. Uh, he's got a much better plan for us and how he wants us to be living our lives and the kind of lifestyles that we have and the attitude that we carry with us through life. So I'm going to pray and we're going to get stuck into Matthew 24 and 25. If you have a Bible in front of you, uh, whether that's electronic or printed, uh, grab it out and uh, it'd be great for you to flick through as we follow through. As usual, I'll have verses on the screens, but the more familiar you are with your own text, the better it is. So uh, let's uh, dive into Matthew 24 and 25 together today. God, as we continue our journey through what you have to say through this very powerful teaching of Jesus contained in these two chapters of your word, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds now to not only understand your truth, but to receive it as a gift from you and allow it to change the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and the actions that will flow out of those things. So God, be at work in us as we continue to worship you now through our listening to your word. Amen. Well, if you've been with us as we've been travelling through Matthew's Gospel, we've been uh, at the beginning point of our journey through Matthew 24, which says a lot about what for the disciples that Jesus was speaking to was in their future. Um, and you might remember that Jesus had just been speaking to his disciples about the fact that the temple that they'd been admiring would actually been torn down. And so they've asked him this question, tell us, when are these things going to happen? And what's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as they're looking forward from their point of view in history, they're thinking all of these things are going to be happening really soon. They're kind of all lumped together. But when Jesus now proceeds to answer those questions, he's taking his time to unravel those a bit and say, well, they're not all one thing that you're asking about. Uh, you have in mind the first event, which is my coming. I'm with you right now and I'm ministering. But the things that you're asking me about aren't going to happen while I'm here with you. Are you going to have to wait a little bit longer? And so he proceeds to tell them about some things that will occur in their lifetime. Uh, things surrounding a war against, with the Jews against the Romans and how that war will end. Um, and those are going to be uh, culminated by AD 70. And then he tells them some things that are going to happen and he doesn't give any sense of timing at all. In fact, he says, as we uh, progress through uh, our text together, that uh, only the Father in heaven knows the dates in which the second group of things that he's going to talk about are going to happen, the, the timing of his return. 
And next week we'll get up to the part of the text where understanding which thing Jesus is talking about at what time is going to be really useful and important to us. But before Jesus starts to describe in detail the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem and, and the war that's going to be taking place in the lifetime of his disciples, and before he starts talking about that last event where he returns again at the end of the age, he gives some general principles about how his people ought to live as initially those awaiting that first uh, event, the destruction of Jerusalem, and as those awaiting the second event, the fall, uh, the end of the age. And what Jesus has to say to his people, regardless of where they are at, between the moment he's speaking and the moment he returns again to judge the world, is there are some things that we have in common with those first century Jews that we have in common with them today about how we're to approach life. Um, and that's what we're going to dive into as he speaks about the age in which we live. He's helping us to understand the time. The time that his disciples were in, in the very moment he's speaking to them, the time that you and I are in as we look at this text uh, nearly 2,000 years later. So let's dive into Matthew 24 from verses 4 to 8. And the words will be on your screen, but again, as I say uh, frequently, uh, look at them in your own lap if you're able to. Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labour pains. So let's first put this section in context. It's talking about things that are going to happen to everyone, whether they are Jews, like the people that Jesus is speaking to in this moment, or whether they're Gentiles, the rest of the nations of the world. Whether those people are Christians, like many of us in this room, who are followers of Jesus, or whether people are not followers of Jesus. The things that Jesus is describing in this part of his message are applying up until the time that he comes again. They're like labour pains, uh, which are going to be coming in waves right until that moment where uh, birth occurs, where Jesus comes and ushers in a new age and a glorious age. Uh, they are pains that lead to an eventual deliverance. You know when things go wrong, sometimes you can just interpret them as things are going wrong. Sometimes we look around the world and say, man, that stinks. That war in Russia stinks. That famine in that part of the world stinks. Those earthquakes that affected all those people and destroyed homes, that stinks. What Jesus is saying as he uh, says this is he doesn't want us to look at these kinds of signs and just say, oh man, that's terrible. What he wants us to remember is that they are reminders that something better is coming. Uh, that they are to trigger our minds and say, you know, it's not always going to be like this. This season of having labour pains, birth pains, that's not going to go on forever. Eventually you'll hold this child and be able to rejoice in the new life that has been brought about. And we're meant to have the same attitude. These are painful, yes, there's no denying it, but something better is on its way. So every time we see this kind of stuff, when life hurts, Jesus wants us to think about that pain in this context. Remember, it's not forever. Remember, there is a glorious event that is coming, and after that is going to be awesome. So keep that in mind. That's the big picture of uh, what he's saying in these verses. You know, when Carolyn was in labour with Tim, 
that was a 36-hour ordeal. And Tim came a month early. So um, they didn't let Carolyn leave the hospital because of the circumstances. So um, we were there, and this, these labour pains were kind of coming and going. And I got sent home, and I, th I thought, no, no, I'm not leaving. You know, it's all happening. You know, it's the first time through. So um, I didn't really know what to expect. But the idea of walking away because birth wasn't going to happen for you know, a considerable period of time, that was weird for me because the pains had started. And Jesus is saying the same sort of thing here. Um, yeah, you might experience some of these pains. Don't freak out. You don't know how long they're going to go for. Um, these are simply reminders that something good will be happening and it will happen at the right time. Now, I made it back in time and uh, was able to be there for the birth and that was all good. Uh, with Alyssa, we both got sent home because she arrived around about the, the time that she was expected. So we turned up, had everything checked. All right, home you go. Um, and we only just made it back to the hospital in time. We didn't even make it into the birth suite. She was born in the, in the observation area. Um, and so it just kind of reminded me as I thought about the different experience between Tim and Alyssa that those birth pains, well, they were the same. Well, not exactly the same, were they, Carolyn? But, you know, they, they were still painful, but it was a very different story about how long it was going to be in each of those cases until the baby arrived. And that's kind of the imagery that Jesus is wanting to give here. Yes, you'll experience the pains. Um, they're not telling you anything about how quickly the end is going to come. They're just telling you that it is coming. Uh, and so we're going to step through those together. Now, just one more thing that I'll mention. As we get further on in the text, not today, but next week, Jesus is going to give us some very specific indicators of things that will be immediately preceding his return. So we are going to get into some nitty-gritty of prophecy. But before he takes us to that point, Jesus wants to give us the general principles that apply for most of us in our lifetimes. No matter when we live, these are the things that he wants us to know about the time in which we live. And what do you notice in verse 4 and in verse 6 that Jesus says that he wants all his people at every stage in history to do whenever they experience or notice the birth pains that the world is going through and will continue to go through until Christ returns? He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to be alarmed. You know, when life gets scary and painful, it's very easy to be deceived and it's very easy to become alarmed. And so we're going to step through what Jesus talks about to prepare us to make sure that that is not our fate as we identify some of those birth pains that he lists. First of all, let's uh, look in verse 5. The first of those birth pains, false messiahs. And whenever anyone gets caught up in following anyone as a saviour figure other than Jesus, the result is always tragic. You know, in the lead up to the destruction of the temple, there were a number of popular leaders who basically got bands of people together and said, I'm going to save us. Um, problem is none of them had overwhelming support, so they were always at each other right until the end of that war against the Romans. In fact, the, the Jews killing themselves, these warring messianic factions, did uh, almost as much damage as what the Roman army itself did. Um, such was the violence of these clashes caused by people following the wrong leaders. And you look after the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, there have been false messiahs right through history. You might even remember in your lifetime noticing on the news that all these kind of weird cults that have sprung up where somebody's claiming to be a messiah-type figure, somebody who can bring salvation, somebody who gives unique access to truth, somebody who, if you just follow me, you'll be ready for whatever that might be. 
for the second coming of Christ, for the aliens to arrive, for the end of the world, whatever that might be, there are people who are always offering salvation. Around 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a single leader named Simon Bar Kokhba, and he led a, a massive um, second revolt against uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, that ultimately saw over half a million Jews killed in that military conflict. And one of the interesting things about what happened when all of these religious leaders, unlike with Jesus, uh, Simon Bar Kokhba had a whole bunch of rabbis all pull in behind him and say, this is the guy. Um, You might remember if you've been with us through Matthew's Gospel, the religious leaders are saying of Jesus, he can't be the guy. But that got turned around um, uh, about a century after this and the religious leaders are behind this guy and and, uh, a lot of the general population are behind this guy and they think, yep, the kingdom's come, they go to war against the Romans, Uh, they're pretty successful for a while but eventually it gets put down. Um, And that led to the Romans, who were sick of these uprisings against them by the Jews, renaming Judea, as it was in those days, um, Palestine, and barring the Jews from having um, too much connection with their ancient capital of Jerusalem. And if you've watched world events since then, you'll notice that this disruption of the people of Israel with their ancient homeland has had all kinds of terrible ramifications through history. Uh, Whenever you follow false messiahs, The impacts are terrible personally and what goes on in the world. And Jesus is saying, hey, you'll notice that there's going to be a lot of pain caused by people following the wrong kinds of saviour figures. There's going to be a bunch of them. Don't fall for that. Uh, Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed about the stuff that they tell you. Don't follow false messiahs. Then in verse 6, he goes on and says that there's going to be wars and rumours of wars. And just like we can look back in history and see all of these kind of false messiahs promising all kinds of salvation for people, we look back in history and see it's pretty much an unbroken line of wars and rumours of wars. And what effect does this have on people? Well, obviously, wars are terrible things. They are incredibly destructive. They do so much damage in the world. But one of the things that they also do is they cause alarm in people and make people very vulnerable to deception. Jesus wants us to remember when we're being affected by wars or rumours of wars, not to lose sight of the truth. Don't start reacting to events in the world on the basis of deception or alarm. See, what happens in a war is there's this great uh, pull toward loyalty to human agencies, human institutions, nations, political parties, whatever it might be. Whenever there's conflict, we tend to take sides in that conflict, and it tends to grow. And what happens is you often uh, even use truths from Scripture, and you can easily mould those to speak into the conflict, just kind of make it sound like that God's on your side. Have you ever seen that happen in history? think crusades, think a whole bunch of things. In fact, one of the examples that comes to mind for me happened uh, during the early stages of the Reformation where there was just a lot of uh, corruption in Europe and in those governments that were allied with the Roman Catholic Church. And in the 1400s, there was this guy named Jan Hus. Um, now, undoubtedly, because I'm not European, I've pronounced that wrong, but, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's, well, that's just the Australianised version of his name. And uh, he'd been lured to a meeting of these uh, Catholic officials uh, on the pretense that they were going to discuss some of the concerns he had with what they were teaching and how they were governing this region. Um, But uh, he was uh, betrayed and uh, put on trial and condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake. And of course, all of those people who had resonated with Huss's call to get back to the scriptures were concerned by this and they didn't know what to do. So what a bunch of them did is they formed a community 
Um, and you might be able to just make out there's a model of it, a recreation on the left there. Um, they found this old abandoned fortress on a hilltop and they called uh, this village uh, Tabor after the, the Mount of Transfiguration because they really wanted to see Christ glorified in their community. And they came together as people who said, you know, we're going to work off the scriptures, uh, we're going to get rid of some of the clutter and the corruption of the, uh, the Catholic system that we've been a part of, uh, we're not going to have rich and poor because that was a huge issue in their culture, we're going to work side by side, whatever we own will be shared among everybody. It's this kind of uh, utopian ideal of community based on the teachings of Jesus and the example of the early church. And it was fantastic. Problem was, as people were travelling toward this community, they would be ambushed and set upon by the governments that were loyal to the Catholic Church because they didn't want this thing, this movement, to go anywhere, to grow and to become powerful. Um, and so they were being attacked. They were always under military threat. And it didn't take long before the constant threat upon their lives, both those who were already in the community and those who were travelling as refugees to it, um, caused them to kind of become a little bit militaristic themselves. Have you ever noticed that when you get mistreated, there's a natural response to, to fight back? Well, that's exactly what happened with these Taborites. And they formed armies and militias and they stormed into Prague and threw priests out of windows and did all kinds of things um, to kind of retaliate against the mistreatment that had been meted out upon them. And what started as this beautiful expression of biblical community got twisted and people were uh, talking about the Antichrist and the end times and Christ's return and how they needed to purify the earth before Christ would be able to return and reign. They, they had warped ideas based on biblical prophecy because the conflict and the tension and the threat and the danger of their age caused them to get a little bit twisted in their thinking. In fact, one of them said uh, and wrote down, and this became in a sense a mantra for their movement, that each one of the faithful ought to wash his hands in the blood of Christ's foes. Can you find that in the Bible? No. I'll just tell you right now, you won't. That's not what Jesus wanted for his church. But yet, these wars, these rumours of wars, all of the political and military tension that they were a part of warped something in them. And they became creatures of their age instead of followers of their Christ. Um, and it was such a tragedy to see that unfold. Within 50 years, this movement had all kind of perished as constant fighting eventually wore them down. Jesus doesn't want people to get deceived or alarmed by wars and rumours of wars. Now, 1400s Central Europe might seem a long way removed from you and I, but do you ever find yourself drawn into taking a side in a conflict? Maybe getting a little bit angsty, maybe becoming a bit of a keyboard warrior, or maybe excusing, mistreating other people and being um, maybe, maybe emotionally damaging or damaging with your words, not really caring about them and loving them as Christ calls us to because they're the enemy. They're the ones who are trying to um, have their way and oppress us and do wrong things. Hey, back off. Don't let all of this conflict in the world twist you. Be biblical Christians, not ones who are alarmed or deceived as a result of the conflict in our world. Verse 7 continues. Ooh, let me go back here. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, as we've just been talking about. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, both famines and earthquakes are mentioned in numerous times in the Bible as signals of God's judgment on the earth. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we know that immediately before the end, and again, we'll get into this next week, there's going to be an, a, a huge increase in these sorts of things 
happening on the earth. They are meant to remind us that this world is broken and in need of deliverance. But what Jesus is simply pointing out here is that every time you see a famine, every time there's an earthquake or any other natural disaster for that matter, even though, yes, they are going to be happening at the end, it doesn't mean that every time you see them that the end is coming. Uh, that logic just simply doesn't apply. So don't get stirred up and interpret natural disasters as signs of imminent doom or judgment or, yeah, God's getting those people for doing the wrong thing. That's not what they mean. It just means our world is in pain and it's meant to point us to the fact that a deliverer will one day come. So these are some of the things that Jesus says will be general signs, things that are going to affect the earth. And be careful that you don't get caught up in them so that you're alarmed and that you find yourself easily deceived into doing things that don't fit with the people of God. These things are going to come in waves until the end of the age. Now Jesus moves uh, from describing these general labour pains, these things that are going to happen in waves right until he returns, and now he starts speaking specifically to the church about things that we will experience until Christ returns. So what does Jesus say specifically to us? Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. We're going to be persecuted. Until Christ returns, you can expect that Christians will be given a hard time in this life. And up until fairly recently, that's been hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around because we've lived in a society which, generally speaking, you know, Christian morals are seen to be generally good morals. So if you uh, live the way Jesus tells you to, most people will think, you know, that's a good person. Um, and often, I don't know about how you've gone in life, often you'll be thanked for simply doing what Jesus says in the world because people have recognised that's a good way to live. We appreciate it. There's something um, intangible about the teachings of Jesus where even though people might say, well, I'm not interested in that stuff, they can see it and kind of smell it and go, yeah, there's something good about the way Jesus calls people to live. But that is changing in our culture. We are moving further away from a morality which aligns with Christianity. Um, we could list a whole bunch of ways that that's happening. Just in this last week, I don't know if you saw the news reports, um, over recent months there was the crisis at City Point uh, School where they're teaching on gender and sexuality uh, and the agreements that they asked families to sign as uh, being part of the school community uh, got brought up as being uh, inappropriate in this day and age. It didn't fit with the, the morals and, and you know, the, the ideas about discrimination that our culture has. Uh, well, just recently, um, a whole association of schools has been uh, targeted by human rights lawyers um, who are similarly saying, well, we're concerned about what you people um, practice in terms of how you teach young people about gender, about sex, and what you expect in terms of the behaviour of the uh, young people and the families who are part of your school community. In fact, I almost chuckled. I, I read uh, about the uh, secretary of the uh, teachers' union for teachers who work in independent schools uh, in Queensland and Northern Territory. And, but what he basically said is, hey, look, these independent schools, they need to remember that their religious teachings should be kept separate, distinct from their policies and their practices. Now, as followers of Jesus, you know, you can't follow Jesus unless you actually do something about what he said. So it doesn't make any sense, but that's what our culture is expecting. Hey, Christians, yeah, yeah, keep teaching your Bible, that's fine. Don't do what it says. Don't proclaim what it says, because that could be damaging to those who hear it and hear that what they 
think, what they feel, what they do, may not actually line up with what God says and what is good and right. Um, So that's considered to be abuse in the the culture that we live in. Now, there's lots of kind of nuance to that, but as our, our culture continues to go down this kind of path, increasingly saying what the Bible says and doing what the Bible says is going to become more and more difficult. Now, we might be tempted, like the table rights, to kind of go to war on all this stuff. And there's a place for standing for the truth and proclaiming the truth. But let's keep this in perspective. When Jesus says, they'll hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name, we might be inching toward that kind of reality. There's a whole bunch of places around the world right now they're in that reality. We're right at the shallow end of the pool. Yes, it's awkward at times. Yes, we feel self-conscious at times. Yes, we get teased and maligned in the press and teased at school and and maybe friendships get torn apart. Yeah, that's starting to happen more and more. We may find that we, over time, move closer to the reality that many others around the world experience. And if that is going to be our fate, what should we do according to Jesus? Well, remember Jesus has already said, don't get alarmed and don't be deceived. Keep that in mind first and foremost. But then he goes on to say this, when, when these sorts of things are happening, what else can you expect to see in the church? Verse 10, then, following on from this, many will fall away, hate each other and betray each other. Here's the thing, when Christianity fits nicely with the surrounding culture, when people look at Christian morals and say, yeah, they're pretty good, we agree, this is a, a good way to live, then the surrounding culture will also fit nicely inside the church. Now, you can be part of a church community and, and generally fit in, even if you're not following Jesus, because, yeah, I mean, we believe in honesty, uh, we believe we shouldn't be too greedy, uh, we believe you, know, you shouldn't be too coarse in your language or you know, too sexually prom- promiscuous or whatever it might be. You, you generally fit in. But the more that society's values shift further away from the values of Jesus, it's harder and harder for people who have the values of this world to feel comfortable in the visible church. So what's the response going to be? This. There's going to be an increase in angst. Where even people who have been part of churches for a long time will say in those churches, how dare you teach that stuff? That was written for a different era. There's going to be hatred at what Jesus stands for and what Jesus says. There'll be betrayal. Uh, We've already seen social media campaigns from within school communities, in Christian schools, uh, and it'll even become more common in churches where people who are a part of those organisations start saying, hang on, we're not going to stand for this stuff, and they're going to try to pull those schools and churches to a different standard of teaching because the values of the world have shifted and they want the church to be more like the world. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be hatred. Relationships will suffer. And when you see that happening, don't freak out, Jesus is saying. Because this is a natural progression that happens where when a church used to be very closely aligned with the world and now starts to move away from it, of course there's going to be a tearing that goes on. There's going to be a separation that goes on. People are going to find, hey, our churches are emptier than they used to be because a lot of people who were just hanging out there, not following Jesus, but comfortable in the churches, they're going to say, well, no, I don't like this anymore. And they're going to go. And it's going to be painful. Friendships, family relationships. You remember Jesus warned about this stuff. They're going to struggle. It's not pleasant to think about, is it? And Jesus goes on to say this. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. One of the pains we experience as we wait for Christ's return is the heartbreak 
not only of those fractured relationships where the way Christians live is going to be increasingly different to the way the world operates, and so that's going to cause relationships to be uh, stretched and broken in many cases, but there are going to be people who rise up as people who say, follow me, I know the truth, who are teaching error. People who will claim to speak for God and they will lead many others astray. The Bible talks about this over and over again. When following Jesus becomes increasingly difficult, it'll be easier for people to accept teaching that suits what their ears want to hear. There'll be false prophets of all flavours to suit the preferences of their hearers. And that goes in all kinds of directions. There'll be false prophets for people who like to be morally superior and point the finger at those down there and say, you wicked scumbags. There'll be false prophets who, on the other hand, teach that we can be morally loose and just live like everybody else in the world, and that's actually okay because the grace of God covers everything. There'll be false prophets for people who want to be puffed up with knowledge. Isn't that interesting? And, oh, wow, I never knew that. But never want to hear about accountability to obedience and actually doing something about it. There'll be false prophets for people who want to get rich in this life and say, God's on your side. You can do whatever you feel like and whatever you want. He'll make it happen for you. There's going to be all kinds of false prophets. Jesus says that this will point us to the fact that his return is near. How near? Don't know. But eventually he's going to put an end to all that kind of rubbish. Um, in the meantime, yeah, we're just going to have to put up with the pain that people are going to be led astray by that kind of nonsense. Um, don't get caught up in that. Don't be a part of that aspect of the birth pains that we experience. Finally, this is what Jesus says in verse 12. And because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. If you've been with us on the journey, you'll remember Jesus back in chapter 22. It said that the greatest commandment, you know, the opposite of lawlessness, to, to really keep God's law is to do what? Love God with everything you've got. Love others as yourself. And so when you're becoming lawless, when you're saying, well, I'm not living by God's laws, what should we not be surprised to notice? Love grows cold. We stop doing the most important thing, loving God and loving others. Whether it's pressure of persecution, whether it's the allure of false teaching, whether it's a desire to fit in with the world, whether it's our you know, own sinful nature, whatever it might be, as we throw off doing what God says, we also lose the ability to really love God and love others. Because that ability isn't found within ourselves. It comes from God and it comes from obedience to his ways. I think there's a real ache for genuine Christian community in the world, for that sense of acceptance and belonging and love and loyalty to one another and, and enduring uh, stuff with one another and for one another and, and, and uh, tolerating each other's sins and imperfections and loving each other through that. I think there's a, a real desire for genuine loving community what there's not so much an appetite for is obedience to the commands of God. And Jesus is really clear here. You're not going to get the community you long for without the obedience that you are called to. It won't happen. You might think that there's a, a utopian community that you can belong to. You'll mess it up simply by stepping into it. The only way you'll experience the kind of community with one another and relationship with God that you long for is by obedience that you've been called to. But having said that we're going to endure all of these kinds of things, man, heavy, isn't it? Depressing. No one wants to see that. But then Jesus gives us hope at the very end of this, this section. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. These pains aren't the end of the story. 
Like just as we know, when you look back on the experience of, of having seen somebody give birth or even having given birth yourself, uh, when you, whether it's um, that you've only read about it and you've never experienced it per personally, you know birth pains are something that leads up to birth and that's what it's for. And that's the good news. And that's what Jesus reminds us of here. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Salvation is coming. And none of these pains can stop it. Nothing Satan does, nothing the world does, nothing that our, our fallen sinful state does can stop the end from coming and salvation will arrive. So when you're experiencing pain, whether it's the pain that our world experiences, whether it's the pain of stuff going badly inside the, the visible church, you go, man, what's going on here? Know that Jesus is coming. He'll fix it all up and make sure that that is your enduring hope. And not only will Jesus give you the ability to endure till the very end and get through all this stuff, he'll also enable you to be his representative to the nations. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Will you please remember that no matter how grim life gets and no matter how painful life is, God is at work not only to bring you through it, to the end so that you'll experience the full salvation of Jesus when he returns but he'll also use you even in the midst of that difficulty to testify to the glory of God to those who desperately need to receive it he's only holding off the day of his return so that more people may be saved he's warning us of the pain we'll experience so that we won't get deceived so that we won't be alarmed we'll remember that we're people on a mission let me finish with some wise words from a, a great British preacher in the 1950s. His name was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Has anyone heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Yeah, um, he, just, um, he had a way with words. He was a terrific writer and, and preacher. And this is one of the things he said. As he looked around at the time he was living in, and he felt a bit of concern and alarm about the spiritual condition of his nation. He says, I see a very great difference between today, and he was uh, saying this in, in the 1950s, uh, and 200 years ago, or even 100 years ago, the difficulty in those early times was that men and women were in a state of apathy. They were more or less asleep. Going back, certainly 200 years, there was no eternal denial of Christian truth. It's just that people didn't trouble to practice it. They more or less assumed it. And in a sense, all you had to do was awaken them and rouse them and to disturb them out of their lethargy. So he's describing a, a time back in history, and it's even further ago for, for many of us, uh, where you think, you know what, there was a time when people knew that kind of Christianity was true, that Jesus was the saviour, that he'd come back again, but you know, life had just gotten busy and full and we kind of lost sight of it, and spiritually we're kind of sleeping, we're, we're, we're dozing off. And you just need to rouse them with this message from Jesus and say, hey, remember, he's coming back again, let's be ready, and be right, yep, let's, let's go. But as he looked at the age he was living in, in 1950s London, he actually began to see that it's, it's worse than that. It's, it's that not so much that people believe stuff that they just don't think about very often, they don't even think any of this Christianity stuff's true anymore. They don't like it, it's offensive, it's distasteful, um, and he realises there's a bigger problem than just kind of stirring people up and saying, hey, wake up, let's get going. Something else is needed. So what did Martin Lloyd-Jones think that that was? He says this, I, sh I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival. Perhaps meeting in one another's homes, meeting in groups amongst friends, meeting together in churches, meeting anywhere you like, and praying with urgency and concentration 
for a shedding forth of the power of God, such as he shed forth 100 and 200 years ago, and in every other period of revival and of reawakening. There is no hope until we do. But the moment we do, hope enters. Here's the cool thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones observed in history and is hoping for in his time in history. You might be experiencing these pains and things might seem really grim. Maybe it's inside the church and people are wandering off from the truth or their love is growing cold and there's just a lack of vigour in meeting together and building into each other and serving with one another. Or maybe it's that there's wars and rumours of wars or natural disasters and you're seeing this stuff and, you, and you're feeling this, this alarm and this, this, um, this, I guess, vulnerability in that moment. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones is, until Jesus returns and says, that's the end date... There's always the opportunity for things to turn around. There's always the opportunity for revival, for reawakening, for renewal, for a new move of God, which says now people are starting to come alive. Now truth is being proclaimed. Now lives are being changed. Now whole countries are finding that their future is going in a different path because God's done something amazing. Now we're experiencing less of the pains, that wave has passed, and more of the glory that is a hint of what we're going to experience in heaven forever. We can have more periods like that in history. It's not gone forever. These birth pains aren't the whole story. God could do something amazing. And that's what the pain is for. It's to wake us up and get us praying so that we may participate in the glorious things that God wants to do right now in history if his people will be stirred up to do this kind of thing. Uh, Our leaders have said that the most important thing that we're doing as a church right now is trying to assemble people together in neighbourhood groups so that we can come together for all kinds of reasons including just to love each other really well and to pray with each other for our neighbourhoods, for our families, for the world around us and just to start to fan into flame this spark of revival. Um, groups that don't depend on all having the same musical taste or the same age of, and stage of life or the same sporting interests or anything else that the world says is a way to clump people together. The only thing we need is Jesus. The only thing we need to have in common is his spirit that knits us together as a community. And as we do that, and as we seek him, who knows what God is doing? You might look at our country and say, man, we're headed for pain. Oh, our path is not looking good. Yeah, absolutely. You are dead right. But who says it has to be that way? Jesus never said that. Until the end comes, God is doing things in history, and he's changing lives. And you and I get to be a part of it, and especially when the pain of this life reminds us that this is not our home, something better is on its way. Let's pray.